Welcome to Studio Berlin, our weekly current affairs show here on KCRW Berlin. I'm your host, Soraya Sarhadi Nelson. Today we will discuss a sensitive topic for Europeans, and that is asylum seekers. Whether in Brussels or at home in the EU member states, few leaders agree on what should happen to people who flee to Europe to escape war and poverty. And as Luxembourg Foreign Minister Jean Asselborn tells Bavarian Radio, those disagreements were before the coronavirus came along to complicate matters. Someone has to show that hesitating, even in times of the coronavirus, isn't really an option. European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen and Austrian social scientist Gerald Knaus echoed that sentiment in interviews with public broadcasters ZDF and ARD. We have to ensure the weakest and vulnerable in these camps are taken care of. What we need now, a plan to extract all those children and families from their extremely dangerous situation on the Greek islands and to help Greece. But is that even possible? Joining me on Zoom to address how COVID-19 is affecting refugees in Europe are Joanna Kakissis, an international correspondent for NPR and This American Life, and from Brussels, James Cantor, who is the founder and editor of the progressive politics podcast EU Scream. Welcome to you both. Hi, Soraya. Thank you, Soraya. Let's start with the border closures. Even within Schengen, if you have visas and documents, there are certainly restrictions, if not outright bans, on who can cross. Joanna, how is this affecting asylum seekers? Um, So in Greece, you have um, the Coast Guard pushing back boats uh, back into Turkish waters in the Aegean Sea, which, of course, is in contravention of international and European Union law. Uh, And of course, this all started before coronavirus exploded in neighboring Italy. This first began happening early in March when Turkey sent refugees to the borders and telling them that the path to Europe was open. But since the coronavirus has overwhelmed Europe, the conversation has shifted to, well, we don't want migrants to bring in the coronavirus, so let's just push them back or not allow them in. Um, Greece has suspended asylum requests, so, you know, that means that no one can apply for asylum here, even if they manage to get through, uh, that, and that means that they'll be summarily deported. And then, you know, of course, this is happening in other countries as well as, you know, Hungary did exactly the same thing. And what I thought was interesting is a couple of days ago, uh, Italy and Malta also closed their ports to asylum seekers, citing COVID-19. So Greece is not alone in, in doing this. James, what about the land routes? Are you getting a sense of what's happening with asylum seekers? Well, on the land routes, of course, Schengen is largely shut. Uh, The policies are quite variable uh, from country to country. It is up to the member states to decide how they wish to shut their borders. In terms of the way that asylum seekers are being treated in the member states, again, that is very much a member state competence in the jargon. It's something that countries can decide for themselves. Asylum services seem to have been wound down, shut down in many countries. In the case of Belgium, they've just been reopened. So there are some asylum claims being processed, and there are some new claims that are going through. So has the coronavirus become a justification for shutting the door pretty much completely? Because from what Joanna was describing, and even you, it sounds like very little is being done to address the issue of asylum seekers. I think to understand that, you have to go back and look at the context 
of migration and asylum in the European Union, and the stance is still almost entirely defensive. The central question for Europe when it comes to asylum and migration well before the coronavirus pandemic has been broadly the same since the 2015 refugee emergency. You could argue that the years between 2015 and 2020 have not exactly been used well. And the central question is, how does a block of disparate states, yes, geographically joined together, but often culturally and politically at odds, avoid another mass migration across its territory, but without tossing out its own values and human rights? And frankly, not so much progress has been made, at least on a continent-wide level, to address that very question. Joanna, how do you see it? Is the virus being used to justify shutting the door to refugees? Yes, I, I think absolutely it has. And I think, you know, to James's point, it's a very good point, is this balance between how do you um, avoid a mass migration without hurting human rights and and refugee rights in the 1951 Refugee Convention. And I fear what's happening is that people would rather sacrifice uh, refugee rights and the 1951 Convention in favor of protecting borders. Just before the coronavirus crisis, you know, on the Greek-Turkey border, President Kyriakos Mitsotakis stood right you know, with Ursula von der Leyen right next to him and a bunch of EU leaders, and they said, our number one priority is, is to protect borders. They made a reference to, like, refugees shouldn't be used as pawns, but, you know, the refugees and their concerns and their rights are really an afterthought. Now with coronavirus coming along, governments are seeing opportunities here to get rid of a problem that they they don't know how to solve. And of course, this isn't this across the board. There are some exceptions, and a notable exception, for example, is Portugal. Uh, But you don't see, in Brussels at least, from my perspective here in Greece, you don't see the impetus to address refugee rights and human rights in the context of the migration problem. Joanna, I want to ask you about Greece. You had mentioned the viewpoint from Athens, and certainly Greece has great concerns because it has these large refugee camps that are just crammed with people who aren't going anywhere. What is the current situation in the camps on Lesbos and elsewhere in Greece, and also on the Turkish border? So um, these are the most horrific camps that you could possibly see, and it's shocking that they're actually in Europe. At the moment, uh, of the 60,000 refugees that are in Greece, 41,000 of them are on the islands in camps that are supposed to hold seven to eight times fewer people than they're holding. Like, for example, you mentioned Lesbos. Lesbos has this camp. It's a very notorious camp, Moria, um, that's supposed to hold 3,000 people, and right now it's got 21,000. Um, so it, it, you can just only imagine just from that description what this looks like. This means that people are very close together, crammed into tents or improvised shelters because they can't fit inside the proper camp and have spilled on over to olive groves and have made these tents out of like pieces of wood and cardboard and you know, plastic, and it's just, it's horrific. So there's no social distancing. And then, you know, Doctors Without Borders have pointed out just this pretty horrific statistic that there's only one water tap per 1,300 people in parts of this sprawling tent city. And there's no soap, so there's there's no way for people to stay clean. So if there's a coronavirus outbreak there, it, it would be a complete disaster. 
Um, the other problem is if there is an outbreak, because there's right now such an anti-immigrant feeling in Greece, this is completely different from 2015 when the Greeks were all seen as helping and they were nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize and oh, look how wonderful the Greeks are. Now the Greeks are very, very anti-refugee. And in fact, um, on the island, you'll see people saying, go back, we don't want you here. So if there's an outbreak on one of these camps, the, the refugees are going to be immediately scapegoated as well. Uh, and there have been uh, coronavirus outbreaks in two mainland camps near Athens. Those were immediately quarantined. And these are not as dense as the island camps. As far as the camps on the, on the Greek-Turkish border, those camps are, um, are essentially deportation centers. When you talk about the fact Germany and Luxembourg say they will break the logjam by taking in a few dozen unaccompanied minors from the Greek camps, that's a far cry from the eight or so EU countries that agreed to take 1,600 refugees before the coronavirus pandemic hit. James, what's the justification the EU uses? I think you have these competing narratives. On the one hand, in Brussels, in the European Parliament, you have members like Eric Marquardt, who's a German Green, who are critics of this uh, very, very modest approach, uh, the one proposed by Germany. I mean, as you say, at least Germany and Luxembourg are trying to partly fulfill that earlier promise of taking minors from the camps. But Marquardt has tweeted that uh, while Germany wants to evacuate 50 children, Germany, on the other hand, is quite willing to bring in something like 80,000 workers to harvest asparagus. So there are these double standards that are certainly brought to the surface in the Brussels conversation. On the other hand, you have that competing with the sort of deeper policy goals, which is to essentially continue shifting responsibility for asylum as far away from Europe as possible. And that really is a priority for uh, many, many EU leaders. This has gone as far as to explore the idea of creating sort of offshore hotspots. So uh, even Libya, with its hugely dangerous and utterly miserable conditions there from uh, civil war, is partly still being used as one of those. Uh, And as recently as 2018, EU leaders, heads of state and government, were sitting there in the council saying, okay, we are going to try and explore how to entirely eliminate the incentive for asylum seekers to come to Europe. You mentioned the fact that Germany is bringing in tens of thousands of harvesters. The Luxembourg foreign minister, Asselborn, in his interview with Bavarian Radio, pointed out another contradiction to the coronavirus argument countries are using to refuse to take in vulnerable refugees from Greece. Since the coronavirus outbreak started, we have flown more than 300,000 people back to the European Union from abroad. That includes, I think, some 200,000 Germans. He's proposed that every EU country, for every half million of its population, take in 10 of the neediest asylum seekers, that this would not be a hardship or a danger to those countries. It seems like a small enough number, so my question to both of you is, why won't EU states go along with that? 2015 was really a battle of two visions. It was of Angela Merkel's uh, more open, accepting Europe, uh, relocating refugees in in several member states and, and sort of coming together to help people in need. 
And then the other vision was, of course, Viktor Orban's, uh, in which uh, every nation decides whether or not they want migrants. Uh, and in his case, he wanted none. And of course, uh, Poland and Hungary, they were found guilty of uh, breaking the law, breaking EU law by not accepting uh, asylum seekers or not enough asylum seekers. But in the end, as James mentioned, I think Hungary, I think Viktor Orban's message and vision, unfortunately, has won because governments are so afraid of, of the fissures and of the splits uh, that another uh, wave of nationalist-inspired rhetoric would inflict on the European Union. If the European Union can't, can't accept uh, refugees as a whole and only four or five countries are taking them in, um, I don't think it's going to work because it's, it's going gonna, it's gonna to breed bad will. And it's always going to be an issue of our vision versus their vision. Like, in other words, Hungary will always say, look, they're taking in migrants and they have violence and, you know, all this fake news that, that Viktor Orban's been successfully able to harness over the years. And as you mentioned, Soraya, it's not enough. I mean, uh, Greece has been asking for years uh, that we actually need you to take in thousands and thousands of people. And, and, you know, they don't stop coming, even with coronavirus. James, what do you think? To answer your question about why is this trickle of migrants, why is this drip feeding of humanitarian uh, aid acceptable? Well, consider this. As Joanna said, Brussels and Berlin did develop plans uh, in 2015, 2016 to relocate up to 160,000 people, people who had arrived in Greece and Italy to other parts of the EU. So effectively moving them across Schengen borders before their asylum applications had been processed. But indeed, that met huge resistance from countries in Central and Eastern Europe. And it's just never going to happen on anything like the kind of scale that Merkel and then European Commission President Jean-Claude Juncker had envisaged. So even though the European Commission just won a court case against those countries that were the most resistant to the plan, that has really turned out to be a face-saving victory for Brussels, if that. The Czech Prime Minister, Andrei Babish, has made clear uh, in, the, in the wake of that court victory that none of the countries losing the case will accept any asylum seekers uh, from that quota system. And plus, Babish said that the quota system has, in fact, in the meantime, expired. That's EU Scream podcast founder and editor James Cantor. And my other guest is Joanna Kakissis, an international correspondent for NPR and This American Life. Thanks for being here with me today. Thanks for having us, Soraya. Soraya, it was a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Next on Studio Berlin, we'll hear how the coronavirus pandemic is affecting volunteers who work with refugees here in Berlin, as well as from a young female asylum seeker in the eastern town of Zul, whose camp was locked down over a suspected COVID-19 case. Stay tuned.
PRI's The World brings you voices from around the globe. It's your daily source for international news and a gateway to cultures beyond our borders. I'm Marco Werman. Join me right here for the next edition of The World. Tune in to The World Tuesday through Saturday mornings at 8 on 104.1 KCRW Berlin. Hey, you. You've been hearing and reading the news all day. So what are you getting out of it? Are you smarter, more informed, better prepared for your dinner party later tonight? Well, The Takeaway has you covered. We ask the tough questions, we hold lawmakers accountable, and if something just doesn't seem right, we ask, how did we get here? It's The Takeaway with me, Tanzina Vega. Tune in to The Takeaway weeknights at 6 on 104.1 KCRW Berlin. Welcome back to Studio Berlin. I'm Soraya Sarhadi Nelson, and we are talking about how COVID-19 is affecting refugees. Volunteers are key in providing help to asylum seekers once they arrive in Germany. But like everyone else, the coronavirus pandemic is keeping those helpers at home. I recently caught up with Kreuzberg volunteer Jane Wangadi in a Zoom call. The 32-year-old is with a group called Women in Exile. Um, my main work is to empower women uh, through various workshops on uh, like how to stop our own deportation and also how through our asylum process, how, what can we do as an individual and what can we do as a group. And you do this uh, at a center? Before the pandemic, we always meet uh, once in a month. And when we have like various workshops, we organize the workshop maybe twice a month. And this is when we meet and I do the workshop with other colleagues of mine. How many women normally are in your workshops? Uh, it really depends. Sometimes uh, 30 to 50, sometimes 50 to 80. It's very hard to give the number because the, the number changes uh, according to the, the way the laws and everything, uh, the laws are tightening, the more the women come to us and the more they need more information. So obviously, when you're talking about a workshop with 50 to 80 people, and now you're we're dealing with a pandemic that doesn't allow us to be with more than one person, not in our family at a time. How are you dealing with, the, with your volunteer work? How are you doing your volunteer work? It is really hard and it is forced us uh, to have other alternatives on how to get into contact with these women. And so we started uh, like introducing the online conferences uh, and it's really working though not every woman who can join because others they don't have smartphones others in different camps there is no networks and the internet problems and so we can't get to each and every woman but we are really trying sometimes to do the voice uh, voice recording but those who can join like on Saturday for example we hold, we, we held our meeting and there were like over 30 women who who logged into Jitsi video conference and it was really good so how are your clients doing how are they managing during the pandemic Actually, they are talking about the fear because when they are in the camps, there is a lot of fear because of this uh, mass accommodation. And it's very like when we talk about the, the social distancing for them, it's very difficult because they have to share their rooms more, more than two people. They have to share the same dining hall. They have to share like a toilet of 50 women. And for them, it's very, very confusing. And also we have like some women who have been and 
they were they couldn't understand the criteria used to uh, quarantine them because they don't have any signs of uh, corona but yet still they are there isolated and to most of the women this thing is really putting them into fear and traumatizing them because also most of them lack information and uh, I think there is no information in various languages in their camps and this is the main challenge. So how has the help that they're seeking change? I mean, are all the questions now about the pandemic? Now there is a lot of questions about the pandemic and uh, and, and they don't, uh, they're asking until when, and also others are still receiving their uh, rejections letters from the banks. And so the, still in the situation, they need advice from the lawyer because with this, with this um, rejection, you have to appeal within two weeks, most of them and all one week and they can't move. And it's really, really hard for the uh, asylum process and so, we are trying to get lawyers who are getting also in touch with them online to help them because they can't move out. And when you move out, maybe to come to Berlin to seek for a lawyer, then when you go back, you have to be guaranteed. So they are trying to ask us, how can we connect to the legal advisors in such moments? How can we connect to doctors in this moment? Because uh, only the emergency cases like the, those who have the, the signs of the COVID-19 who are really taken care and the rest are asking what can we do in such such a time and it's really really traumatizing and it's very very hard. So what has the pandemic done to your organization Women in Exile in terms of financing or the number of volunteers who can help? Yeah, it's uh, it has really, really affected us. Uh, being in mind, our work are uh, mostly f- from our finances. Uh, we really uh, depend on spending, and most of the time, even we go out to give like workshops, or uh, and where we get after the workshop, we get like honoral, and now we can't get it anymore because we don't travel and we don't get this. So when you're saying spende, just for those who may not know the German word, spende is donations, and also, ah, yeah, you're, donations. You're, and you're right, and you're honorar, you're talking about honorarium. Um, what about the number of volunteers? Have your number of volunteers uh, dropped because people again can't get out? It's a it's a two way side. Those who used to be there, most of them have dropped because of the they they have been affected in one way or another. But also they are outsiders now. So many emails coming to us asking what can I do in this moment? I'm free. I'm not working. I'm at home, and I can imagine myself doing like um like translation. Yeah, this is how it is in the situation. Jane Wangari, thank you very much for being here uh, with us today to talk about this subject. She is with Women in Exile. Thank you very much. The German Interior Ministry tells KCRW Berlin that as of April 7th, 89 asylum seekers had tested positive for the coronavirus in 12 federal states. The German practice has been to lock down refugee centers if any of its residents are suspected of having the virus. On Monday, I spoke with an Afghan asylum seeker who is at one such refugee center in the eastern German town of Zul. She asked me to only give her first name, Mariam, because she worries the German authorities might get mad at her for doing the interview. Mariam, your center was quarantined last month because of a suspected coronavirus case. Tell me what happened. 
An asylum seeker had just arrived here from Sweden. He developed flu-like symptoms and he was taken to the hospital to be evaluated. His roommates weren't allowed to leave their room at the center, and the rest of us were restricted to the grounds. We were allowed to eat in the cafeteria for the first three days, and after that had to pick up our food and take it to our rooms. The quarantine lasted two weeks before it was lifted, and the man ended up being diagnosed with the flu. During the quarantine, did the volunteers or security guards show up for work? The first week, there were a few, but then nobody came inside, except for the police. But even they avoided coming inside unless it was absolutely necessary. Not even the ambulance would come inside unless it was a real emergency. Did the center workers tell you and other residents about precautionary measures that you should take during the quarantine? They didn't give us instructions or tell us why this quarantine was happening. Once we were allowed to go back outside, they told us we had to practice social distancing in town. Was food available to you during the quarantine? There was food, most of it cold and not very good. Usually bread and cheese and occasionally soup. After the quarantine, the food got better. Every so often we get fruit, usually bananas or apples. The quarantine is over and it was a false alarm, but do you feel safe from the coronavirus at your center? No one has coronavirus here yet, but when new asylum seekers arrive, we worry because they haven't been tested and move along the 500 people who live here. Does the center provide you with hand sanitizer or masks? No. Although on the first day of the quarantine, we were given a mask. After that, they didn't give us any more. They've never given us hand sanitizer or anything with alcohol in it. They don't even give it to residents who have young children. Thank you, Mariam. Please stay safe and healthy. That's all the time we have this week. Thanks for joining me and my guests, and tune in again next week for another episode of Studio Berlin on 104.1 FM. You can listen to past episodes of Studio Berlin at kcrwberlin.com.